Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly program celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Vivian Ming, Chief Scientist at Guild, a talent acquisition tech company in San Francisco. I read about you in the New York Times. So tell me what you do at Guild. Guild is a company whose goal is to bring meritocracy back to tech hiring. We have customers that are looking for programmers, all the biggest tech companies you can Like Google of. and Like Google, like, like Facebook, Microsoft, though branching now people that you wouldn't think of, like Nike, some banks and others. It just it's so pervasive. So much of what we do is based on some kind of programming. Every company has somebody that they need to hire in this space. The founders, Shore Desai and Luca Bamasur, decided they wanted to create a company that could go beyond qualities in a resume that they know recruiters look at. The easiest way to get a job at Google is be good, but go to Stanford and know people that are already working. If you don't fit those two qualities, it's not a knock on Google. They get so many resumes that in some sense, what else are they going to do? So as chief scientist, what I do is come up with algorithms to go beyond that. How many variables are you looking at? And could you talk about what some of those might be? Currently, we're looking at 50,000 different features, as we call them, about a person. That boils down to something on the order of 100 independent dimensions. Each of those dimensions is saying something unique about the people that we're looking at. Are each of them weighed differently? Each of them are weighed differently. And one of the cool things we do is that they're weighed slightly differently for slightly different companies. And where we're in the process of developing and advancing these algorithms all the time. So the number of features increases, the weighting on these factors increases. We can go to these companies. They say to us, I'm looking for a Java developer in Boston. And we return a list ordered by how good we predict people to be of the best Java developers in Boston. Okay, now talk about some of these variables. On the hiree side, some of these variables have to do with how people express themselves. Uh, Not generically, but specifically related to the profession that we're recommending them for. Some of these are very simple things. We just look at what social sites they spend their times on. That would give us a little nudge in one direction or another Mm -hmm. in our estimate of how good you are. The way you describe yourself on your resume, on LinkedIn. I actually don't look that much at Facebook because Facebook really strongly represents what you want other people to think about you rather than who you actually are. It's a strange quality. There's a lot of information there. I was going to ask you about that. I think all of these sites are pretty easily gamed. Say a company's looking for someone to be a C programmer. So C is a fairly low-level programming language. It's used by people to build really fundamental pieces of very fast processing. There's also a language called C++. It's very similar to C in its application, but it has a difference and a pretty fundamental one in how it's structured. You will very commonly see on resumes that someone is proficient in C slash C++. If they say that, our algorithm predicts that they are not a good C or C++ programmer. (laughs) Why? Because these are different languages. (laughs) If you were a professional programmer, C was your space for doing things. Even if you happen to know C++, 
That's not how you describe yourself. At least as we look across okay. the 4 million profiles in our database, mm -hmm. that is not how the best C programmers or C++ programmers describe themselves. So your algorithm sounds like they're going to be constantly changing the more information you get into this In fact, we built data. it with what we call temporal discounting. So over time, it tends to ignore things that happened a long time ago and really focuses on right now. So that allows us to have a bit of a memory in a sense, I can say something like what I just said because I know our algorithm will adapt Yeah. Uh, if people sort of start to try to game it. But at the same time, the tech world is so fast-moving, it has to adapt. You know, if we recommend someone as a highly qualified programmer because they use a technology that was popular 10 years ago, then we're probably not doing a service to our customers. Are you only servicing tech companies? But In the Bay Area, certainly, but we certainly service e-commerce companies like Walmart, they have an incredible presence in, in technology. Uh, long before, in fact, a lot of other companies were doing big data, they had huge servers full of everyone's behavior at Walmart uh, that they were analyzing. Luca, our co-founder and chief technology officer, came up with the original idea of let's look at open source code. So this is code that developers write freely to share amongst themselves. And this isn't trivial work. Some of the absolute backbone of our technology infrastructure is based on open source code. And this ranges from Linux, which runs a vast amount of computing and web serving and everything around the world, to machine learning languages like Mahout. It's all just freely given out. Luca came up with the idea, why don't we go there and actually look at the free public code that they put out and evaluate it? He wrote this just fantastic system that goes through and reads their code, reads their contribution, because many of these projects have many people on, and we can split that out, and evaluates how good they are as a programmer. And so our original system was based on that. Some companies like Google and Facebook actually do open source as part of their internal development. For you know any techies listening, things like Hadoop and Cassandra have been turned out by Yahoo and by Facebook just freely for the use of the rest of us, but they built it for themselves internally. That's awesome. But many, many tech companies, particularly a lot of these big server-based companies mm -hmm. like IBM, they don't do that. And so there's a whole army of people working there that we traditionally don't have insight into. We have hundreds of thousands of people that we can look at and evaluate. There are millions of developers out there. We very roughly estimate about 8 million professional working developers. In the world. Right? Yeah. We have a database in the U.S., Europe, China, and large parts of Asia and India of roughly 4 million. I've been amazed and been told by some of our customers that some of their best results have come by looking outside the United States within mm -hmm. our database. So we want to take those hundreds of thousands of people that have gone out and done something wonderful and very accurately convey to our customers how good they are. This is KALX Berkeley, 90.7 on your FM dial and streaming on the web at kalx.berkeley.edu. I've been talking a lot about almost surface-level information that we pull out of these sites. Like, you know, did people really like the answers you posted on Stack Overflow? Uh, how often was your code on GitHub? How often was the code on GitHub pulled, forked as they call it, and used by others or followed by others? But we can actually get more sophisticated than that. We can literally go in and evaluate the content of what people are saying. Like on, to tell how what kind of person they are? Or in that? essence. And, and I think many of our customers would be interested in, in us putting out a product that can actually say this person is a good personality match for you or a good 
you know, match in terms wow, of how that's going to upend all of these search firms. And we're not trying to build something to replace the existing systems per se. Some of them need replacing. They need disruption. They, but yeah, as they say, <laughs> disruption. But even starting more simply, a lot of recruiters with titles like technical recruiter are not technical people themselves. But many of them, they get a resume. And it says, we need someone with Flask experience. Well, what is Flask? This recruiter doesn't know. And it's not because they don't know their job. It's because that's a pretty specific technology. It's a subset of Python, which is a subset of interpretive languages. And it isn't necessarily their job to know this, although wouldn't it be nice if they did? And then they get a resume. And that resume says the person works in Django. Well, little do they know, those are highly compatible technologies. That person may be a great candidate, but if they don't see those matching words, part of our research right now and some exciting potential products to come is based around being able to turn people into instant experts, essentially designing systems that will understand the ontology, the taxonomy of the technology world maybe other worlds as well. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just say, tell us who you love at your company right now. Yeah. Who, who's incredible? And you say, oh, well, Jill and Brad. And I love Jill and Brad. And we just said, oh, here are 20 more Jill and Brads. <laughs> and you say, oh, well, these five, not quite what I meant. And we say, oh, thanks. Here are another five that fit even better. And just... you could turn that experience into the recruiting experience. It's like you did one interview. And we, behind the scenes, populate the results of your interview with the ideal candidate or the ideal set of candidates. That's your great. job is to simply go out and do the recruiting. All we care about is whether they fit the job, what you just said, you need it. I saw Ray Kurzweil speak here recently, and one of the things he was talking about was the ability to know before you even know what you need. Well, that's the beauty of what I'm just describing. Myself, for example, I just recently filled out my team for Guild. I started the process by trying to scratch down ideas of who would be the right candidate. And then we start the process and I realize, oh, that's not quite right. And then we go back and we kind of iterate a little bit. And, you know, my recruiter is looking to match the specific terms on my job description I've written up. And it's an ugly and inefficient process. And it's inevitably going to miss great candidates, great candidates that don't fit the obvious mold of a great candidate. Like the guy that in the New York Times article. Jade. Jade, okay. He didn't go to college. Jade has this amazing story. No obvious exceptionalism in high school. No work history that speaks to the corporate world or even the startup world. You wouldn't just not bring him in for an interview. His resume probably wouldn't even get in the door. Mm -hmm. Why would you ever consider someone like this? Well, you'd consider him because he's an amazing front-end developer. And he's done amazing work for us, us. And Luca discovered him using the algorithm Luca developed by saying, who is the best front-end developer in Los Angeles? Essentially, that was his question. There was Jade with a perfect score right up there. A, a guy no one would ever look at. You know, we called him up, and of course, he had to be he shocked. Us, what? This tech company in San Francisco, a startup, what are they? Brought him up for an interview, and it clicked, and he does great work. You know, as the article says, this is kind of an experiment. Yes. I think an experiment which I can personally say Jade is going to do great things, and I love him. It's fun having him in the office. Yeah, I bet. So that was a huge discovery for us. People that would otherwise get ignored 
have a legitimate shot at jobs they're qualified for. In fact, my research says for every one of those standouts, there are a hundred times as many people that are just as qualified. The tragedy isn't that the credentialed people are getting the jobs. They deserve it. The tragedy is all of those other people being left behind. And we have the opportunity now to say, look at this. Here are 10 people. We're saying they're all equally qualified. You've got the money and the opportunity and you want certainty. Okay, hire the Stanford candidate, the MIT candidate, the Caltech candidate. But, you um, want, but if you want somebody good and you don't have that money, or maybe you've lost out to... Facebook and Google. Yeah. Not everybody can throw a million dollars just to get someone to come work for them. There's a real market distortion here. A small number of people are being highly overvalued, and it is scorched earth in Silicon Valley trying to find those proven developers. There are a lot of people mm -hmm. out there. The question is, how do you find them? How do you validate them? Facebook and Google are testing our system not because they need us to find candidates, because they want to find the candidates they can't find otherwise. To use their language, they want to find diversity. Fully qualified, equally qualified candidates. Our system does not over-promote anybody. You have to make it there on your merits. Open source is a wonderful thing to do for the world, but it's also a, a demonstration of who you are and what you can do. Even small projects. We use those, and believe me, recruiters look there also. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley. And today I'm interviewing Dr. Vivian Ming, chief scientist at Guild, a talent acquisition tech company in San Francisco. I have a thread that runs through all of my work. So I'm a visiting scholar here at Berkeley at the Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience. I have a company that I co-founded with my wife and a former student of mine called SOCOS, where we do cognitive modeling of students for educational technology. And I even dabble around with things like Google Glass that I'm wearing right now and working in modeling diabetes, which applies to my son who has diabetes. Across all of that, what's important to me is maximizing human potential. At the Redwood Center, I'm interested in neuroprosthetics, particularly what we call cognitive neuroprosthetics. People that have Alzheimer's, that have hearing loss, that have decreased working memory spans, that have autism. Imagine what we can do with the technology that's coming up to compensate for these. Google Glass, for those of you who don't know, is a sort of experimental developmental project that Google's actually put out in the wild now. So I'm wearing a pair right now. And they don't look too bad either, people. No, and they're going to look even they better look, a year oh, from They now. look pretty cool, actually. I, I like them. It's voice activated, and so I can turn it on with a head nod and say, okay, Glass, take a picture. And there we go. I just took a picture. So I can essentially see Google search results. I can see videos, get directions. Imagine I put this on an autistic child. I've done previous research in automatic facial expression recognition. Imagine the oh, video yeah. camera is watching the expressions of the person I'm talking to, processing it back on a server, and then in the little pop-up, I'm telling the child what, it, what emotion that person is feeling. So they have a chance to get a real-time feedback on their interactions. Mm -hmm. Imagine 20 people in Boston had been wearing glass. The explosions go off, and those 20 people say, okay, glass, virtual EMT. And they are live-connected with an emergency room doctor working at desk, and the doctor can see what they see through the camera. I can hear the doctor in a, the mic that goes into my ear, and in the heads up, I can see them talking to me. I can read your heart rate right off the camera, just from subtle changes in your skin color and body temperature and things like that. And suddenly, those 20 people went from being shoppers and runners to being first responders. Amazing. The idea of what you can do with people through 
neuroprosthetics as I call them, and now it's the augmented cognition, is, is just amazing. Retinal implants, motor prosthetics, people learning to move uh, quadriplegics. Like, and stroke victims. And stroke right? victims. People that haven't moved parts of their body in years and years. This really laid the, the groundwork. It was what sort of got me into graduate school. It's what drives my academic research still. When I was given a chance to think about, for example, cognitive modeling of students, I wanted the opportunity to go out and bring that out into the world. Instead of being an academic project, which is incredibly valuable, my wife and I founded a company so that we could actually... Is that SOCOS? So that's SOCOS. I was working at the time as a research scientist, uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, my wife was a lecturer. She studies the learning sciences, which is sort of cognitive psychology for education. And I had a student at the time, the most amazing guy. He's at the Ed School at Stanford now. His name is Engen Bombacher. We decided we wanted to start a company where we could do something amazing, which was figure out whether students understood what they were talking about in their own free-form discussions, talking to other students, interacting with instructors, sending emails, doing homework. So helping teachers know where they're not reaching students? Exactly. But to do it without imposing anything on them. There's a lot of buzz around ed tech. Khan Academy Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of work by the Gates Foundation, companies Mm -hmm. like Dreambox and Carnegie Learning and others putting out really amazing technology. But one aspect of most of that technology is this is the learning experience. We have decided a curriculum for you. If you want to adopt this for your classroom, this is what the experience will be. And we'll need to retrain your teachers. And we'll bring the computers into the classroom, and the kids will solve math games um, that took, you know, years to really optimize and get just right. And they're proven effective, at least in the lab. They have some challenges in the wild, though. Teachers don't buy in. The curriculum isn't quite adopted correctly hard to track exactly what students are doing. Wouldn't it be better and sort of more responsible for us as technologists to say, teachers, curriculum developers, you're the experts. Go explore and educate the way you want to. Just share with us everything that that experience produces. And it will be our hard job to make meaning out of it. We looked at an introduction to biology class and an MBA class in economics, and we simply looked at their online discussions. What we found was, one, we could learn biology and economics just by listening to the students. We didn't need to model a textbook ahead of time or bring an expert in to build our system. Instead of an expert system about biology, we had an expert system about how students thought about biology. Or what they knew. Or what they knew. So it included the right and the wrong, and it included it with nuance. And then when we took in a new group of students with new instructors, we found in week one we could predict what grade they get in the class, again, just from their free-form discussions, not looking at homeworks or essays or final exams. By the end of the class, we had an extremely tight understanding of what they knew and how they would perform in the the class, the final grade they would get. And the vision is, wouldn't it be great then, back in week one, if we could say to the student, the learner, to the instructor, we predict these students share a misconcept. And historically, looking at other students, we found that these interventions, like a reading or a lecture or a homework experience, were effective in moving students from this misconcept to this more normative concept. 
the teacher teaches the class the way they want to. And the way they should because they know what their kids aren't getting. They are the expert. And we simply, essentially, in real time, give them feedback on which students are getting it and which aren't and effective ways they might go back to the students that aren't. And this is in practice right now somewhere? Um, We've published papers on it. We're in Mm -hmm. talk with a couple of prominent educational technologies companies that want to use our system as the intelligence behind their amazing products. So you're going to make people a lot smarter. That's our goal. And then there's going to be a lot more competition for all those great jobs you're finding, too. (laughs) Well, again, so we're looking at maximizing human potential, and the ability of our system is to identify the unique understanding of a given student and really try and move them in the most positive direction we can. We are incredibly passionate about the ability to understand student cognition and really create AIs that are just personal tutors that will go with students through the rest of their lives. Here's our big thing for SOCOS, end all standardized testing. I I get the sense that your life is definitely informing your work. Everyone always thought I would be really good at school. My, My dad being the sort of crazy dreamer that he was, just was convinced, ah, you are gonna, you're going to get a Nobel Prize someday. I know it. He was incredibly successful. At he had, a, he got a bronze medal in Vietnam, right? He did. He, I mean, he was like an amazing helicopter surgeon. I was he reading would, about him. So he grew up on a farm, five kids in his graduating class, I think. He got full scholarships. He was an amazing man. As a, as a doctor in the community, specifically a gastroenterologist, you know, treating all the patients that come into his door, he instilled in me the belief that you should leave a life of substance. And it's why I choose to do the work that I do. My mother is a teacher out of Kansas as well, worked for decades, and a, and a great teacher. Sixth grade, public school, Salinas, California. She is an amazing woman. They expected things of me despite the fact I I typically was failing all of my classes through high school, through my first years of college. I was very unhappy growing up. The only way my father agreed to send me to this private high school, Robert Louis Stevenson, is if I played football. But he had these fears. This is back, you know, early 80s. You know, some froofy private school might turn my son gay. Little did he know that it was that very experience that totally clarified the world for me. And the world being, I never understood the other boys. Their behavior, casual sexual jokes made no sense to me. I'll I'll be honest. I thought everyone was an idiot but me. And then I understood I was the one that was different. When did you come to that realization? This is when I was 12. The understanding didn't change anything. And in some ways, it sort of made it worse because, okay, I was a boy and I didn't want to be. What good does that do you? That just makes life harder. So I got through high school is the best way of describing it. I loved academia. I was planning on being a doctor. Like 85% of the undergrads at UC San Diego is just basically a big biotech school. And I showed up there. And now no one was even looking over my shoulder. And I wasn't doing the homework. And then I wasn't going to class. And then I wasn't even bothering to show up at the final. So you had not confronted either your mother or father at this point with how you felt? So now we're into my 20s. By that point, I'd considered the idea of gender transition, but I was so isolated and so alone, no support. So I'm starting to learn a little bit, but I'm not part of any community. And I'm thinking, how am I going to keep 
going being mm -hmm. unhappy. I completely stumbled into a job without looking for it, running an abalone farm in Santa Cruz, California. The economy in Japan collapses. So they're our main customer base, and now they're not buying our sushi anymore. When the end came, because it was inevitable, I had saved up a little bit of money, and I thought, why don't I just go back to school and try and do something substantial? I so had, you had not finished your undergraduate I had not yet. finished my undergrad. I'd been, I think I'd been there three years. Mm -hmm. What degree could I finish in a single year? I literally flipped a coin between economics and cognitive science. Cognitive science one. I thought, okay, I'm going to be a neuroscientist. I went there, and I started taking classes, and they were just like, ridiculously easy. I was getting A's and A pluses and everything. Compared to having worked at this abalone farm where, you know, the world was falling apart every single day. And my, my love of research and academia finally had fertile ground where I actually got successful feedback. In one class, the professor came back and said, I've got a research project. Would you like to work on it? And that eventually led me into this field of theoretical neuroscience. I applied to grad schools and I was still presenting mail at that time. I had a very deep voice and a presence, and I was getting a lot of the benefit of the doubt. You know, mm -hmm. I'd come into psychology departments and talk sophisticated mathematical ideas about cognition with that presence, and people would start nodding their heads and saying, you know, would you want to come join our lab? Of course, I cherished those opportunities, but I always kind of felt like a fraud. Do you really know? You were whether... gaming it. Exactly. And I gamed it all the way to Carnegie Mellon, which is an amazing place. And I worked there um, with several people. Jay McClellan, who's a Jay, is now at Stanford. Mike Lewicki, now at Case Western. And uh, Lori Holt, who is uh, still at CMU. I just loved working with all of them. But I was still fundamentally unhappy. I was having all of this success finally. You know, our, my work with Mike was published in Nature, and I had chances to get up in front of hundreds of people at you know, major conferences and talk about our research and feel good for five minutes, and then it was gone. And then I met Norma. Um, we were together in the psychology department at Carnegie Mellon. Early on in our weird courtship, she told me deep, dark secrets about herself. And all I said was... I've got a pretty big secret, too. Maybe I'll tell you to you someday. Four years later, our final year at Carnegie Mellon, fin finishing our dissertations. It was my birthday. We were together. We were actually engaged at that point. I'm, I'm just going to be the best husband that I can. And I'm successful at work. I have someone who makes me happy. So many people don't have either of those things, much less both of them. I don't know how it came about, but I was invited to be in an experiment to look at the effects of anxiolytics, so anxiety-reducing medicines, on heart health. And it was a blind, double blind. No one knew what medicine they were getting. So I was taking something. Turned out the medicine they were testing was called Selexa. But I didn't know if I was taking any. And in retrospect, it was so obvious that like the change in behavior and so forth. But turned out I was, I learned after the fact I was in the treatment group. Why was that so fascinating? Because it was in the midst of this and looking back, I realized, wow, I wasn't shouting at any people. I'm, I'm, I was like a notorious angry driver. And I said, wow, I haven't, like, shouted at anyone in the car in, like, months. Because in the midst of this, for whatever reason, I told, felt in the moment total freedom to just share that with her. Norma, my big, deep, dark secret is that I wish I were a woman. You weren't married yet, right? We weren't married, although we were okay. engaged. Um, we stayed up that night talking, and, and we talked for about a week. That was the start of my transition. Completely unplanned, completely unexpected. But with her full support. With her, we loved each other. Her parents still 
really struggled. How about yours? What makes me most happy is that before my father passed away, he was back to bragging about me again. He had some struggles and he had troubles with pronouns. I mean, our parents, I will single out my mother. She had like three days of tears and then a light switch. And she was like, all right, we've got to go get you a new wardrobe. You, you need professional outfits. I mean, she just has been amazing from that moment on. Yeah. My siblings have been incredibly supportive. Norma's siblings have been incredibly supportive. My friends, friends that I most feared coming out to, it was, the response was amazing. Normally, this decision is a decision to start a new life. Not because you want to, but because your family leaves you and your friends won't talk to you and your career is over. Most importantly to me, Norma is still an enormous source of happiness. Our children are an enormous source of so happiness. So you have a boy and a girl, right? I have is a boy great? and a girl. That's great. Um, I'm their mommy. I'm also their donor. Did you have the foresight to... We banked uh, ahead of time. Very good. That tells me a lot about how this idea of merit and bias, like you say, how people treated you yeah. as a man and you were g gaming that. So that has informed a lot of your algorithmic work and That's guilt, right. Correct? I feel like a secret spy having seen all yeah. of this through a man's eyes. And that's such a good thing to do to try to eliminate bias in the hiring practices of the workforce, exactly. whatever they might be. At Guild, I had the opportunity to work in a company whose motto is meritocracy. We want to give everyone a legitimate shot at what they're qualified for. So I could take my expertise there and apply it again back to my life's goal of empowerment and maximizing human potential. And so Guild really has become an amazing platform for that. I bet a lot of our listeners are going to want to get a hold of you okay. or talk to you or maybe ask you a question. Do you have a website that you would recommend they look at both for Guild questions but also LGBT questions or anything Absolutely. like that? Absolutely. If you look us up at guild.com, G-I-L-D.com, you can see the kind of work that we do, and you can learn a little bit about me and the founders there and, and our work in meritocracy. Our education work at SOCOS is at socos.me, S-O-C-O-S dot M-E. At the Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience here at UC Berkeley, it's at redwood.berkeley.com. Edu. Uh, you can see all the amazing research we do. Very geeky. You'll love it. Finally, there's my own website. If you just want to reach out to me personally, on, maybe on LGBT issues or anything like that, you can find me at vivianming.com. I am not much of a social networker, but I love to sit down and talk with people. I told a group of students here from Stanford and Cal yesterday, learn to do something of value so that you'll have some tools for the rest of your life. Learn engineering or learn the practical skills of putting words on a page. Whatever it is, but learn something tangible that other people will value. Commit fully to that amazing thing you're doing right now. You've got a whole life ahead of you to do more amazing things. That's kind of how I personally have embraced the very weird and an incredibly fortuitous life I've had the chance to live. The amazing life of Dr. Vivian Ming. Thank you for being on this program. I've really enjoyed it. It was a real pleasure. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, methodtothemadness.org. That's all one word. See you in two weeks at the same time.